Hi, this is Mark, lead pastor of Lux Digital Church. I want to thank you for joining us today and also invite you to join with us live at twitch.tv slash Church every Wednesday night at 8.30 p.m. EST. Thank you for joining us and please enjoy this message. Hello and welcome to Lux Digital Church. My name is Mark and I'm the pastor here at Lux. You're here with us for the very first time tonight. I want to welcome you in and say thank you for coming and joining us tonight. I also want to challenge you whenever you feel comfortable to take a next step with us, say hello in the chat or drop a follow on the channel. If you say hello in the chat, all that we're going to do is welcome you into our community. And if you drop a follow on the channel, all that we're going to do is send you a DM here on Twitch inviting you to come and join us on Discord. And if you're joining us later on as part of our on-demand family over VOD or podcast or YouTube, then welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for spending some time investing in your spiritual journey. And there's a link to our Discord, both either in the panels below if you're on Twitch or in the description of either this YouTube video or podcast. We'd love to have you come and join us on Discord. Church isn't just about spectation or consumption. It's also about participation. And participation happens over in our Discord server. If you've never used Discord before, I promise you it's getting easier and easier with each Discord update as they create more and more ways to do onboarding and allow you to get acclimated with the new environment. It's well worth the investment of learning the new app and the new platform. If you haven't used Discord before to come in and plug in with us in Bible studies and small groups, devotionals, and just general gaming and life conversation that happens there every single day. If you're here with us tonight and you're live, it is so good to have so many of you here with us tonight. Baja Blast, it's good to see you back. Breach, breach, breach. I know I haven't gotten a chance to say hello to you. Um, if I haven't gotten a chance to say hello to you yet, I'm sorry if I haven't been able to give you a little shout out and say hello. One of the things that we like to do at the beginning of our services here at Lux is make sure we say hello to as many people as we possibly can so that you know that you're seen, that you're recognized, that your story matters, that we believe God is doing something new in your life and in your story story. If you're here at Lux, we don't believe that God is done with you. We believe that God has something fresh for you. We believe he has something new in store for you, something exciting for you. And God is always at work using both good and bad for his redemptive story. We're going to be talking about that tonight, but we're really excited to have you here. No matter where you are in life and what you're facing, maybe you're feeling a little bit down. Maybe you're at work right now. Maybe you're working out. Maybe you're like Malachi Malachi and you're doing chores in the barn while you're also at church. No matter where you are or what's going on, on your other monitor or in your house or in your life or at work or with your kids, we are so glad that you decided to come and hang out with us tonight. So welcome to our church, my friend. You're part of a family here. Tonight, we are in part four of a 10-week collection of talks called The Conversationalist. And in this series, we have been talking about some of the stories that Jesus told that are changing the world. And the reason for that is because Jesus told these stories and they have radically shifted humanity, human cultures, and the history of the world. Uh, Jesus was the focal point of all of human history. He has become the linchpin for our dating system and not like how we date one another, but like literally how we count the years. But he has also been the focal point of so much conversation over the past 2000 years, the single most impactful person to have ever walked the earth. And he did it with very limited resources in very limited time. And he did most of it through telling these cryptic stories and kind of strange situations about a new kingdom that he was going to be the king of that wouldn't have a throne or 
even property or being able to be drawn on a map. Uh, these stories have changed the worlds of hundreds of thousands and millions of people throughout the last 2,000 years. They have shifted cultures. They have caused wars. They have brought great healing. They have spurred people on to love and compassion, and it has caused the church to be the single greatest humanitarian effort to have ever existed throughout all of human history. It is these teachings and these simple stories of Jesus that have so radically changed the world that we are looking at over the course of 10 weeks. We're taking 10 of the many stories that Jesus told, and we're examining and looking at how they might impact our lives clear in 2023. What are the implications for 2,000-year-old stories for our life in the world of the internet and smartphones and all of the other things that are going on today. And one of the things that you're going to see today is the sort of social upheaval that many of us experience today between the left and the right, between this and that, between whatever, were going on in Jesus' day two. The, the very real struggles that we're facing today in terms of different ideologies and worldviews colliding with one another, both on the TV and in our personal lives and with our friends and with our family members, was happening in Jesus' day two. It was nothing new to him, even though it's being done through new ways. And so tonight we're going to look at why Jesus stories have impacted the world the way that they have and why one story in particular can tell us how we can connect to the kingdom of God, which we're going to talk about tonight as well. Before we do that, let me read the key statement for this series. It's the one thing that we're going to go back to that links all of our messages together so we stay on track. Hi, Alice. It's good to see you. And it is this. Jesus told stories then that are still changing the world today. Jesus told stories then that are still changing the world today, which is truly and completely amazing. Now, the story we're going to look at tonight comes to us from near the end of the book of Matthew. This is coming towards the end of Jesus' life, and it's once he's come to Jerusalem for the final time. Different gospel accounts, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospels. The first four books of the first four books of the New Testament give different accounts of times that Jesus came and went from the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. The vast majority of his three years of speaking and teaching and leading people was spent in and around the northern regions of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. But the story today actually takes place in the city of Jerusalem. We're going to look at just the very beginning of this section of the book of Matthew and then and after that, I'm going to give us some context so we can understand exactly what's going on and, and what's at play in the story. So let's take a look right now at Matthew chapter 21 and just verse 23. It says this, when Jesus returned to the temple, that being the temple of Solomon, he began teaching the leading priests and began teaching the leading priests and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? Now, this particular passage and this verse that I pulled out, outside of context, might mean absolutely nothing to you. So that's why we're going to do our best to seed it inside of the narrative that's being told by Matthew and the intention at which Matthew is telling it. So... What happened just before this passage was Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and we call it the triumphal entry, which is kind of unique. This entire story is totally saturated with symbolic meaning that will mo 
mostly graze over today. This is what Christian churches celebrate as Palm Sunday. So basically what happened is Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey and the people gathered like crazy. Now Jesus already had a tremendous number of followers and a huge amount of popularity in Galilee. People were anticipating his arrival in Jerusalem because many people thought that Jesus would be the Messiah or the savior of Israel. And in this way, they viewed him as a political and a military leader, someone who would overthrow the Roman occupiers and give the nation of Israel back to God's chosen people. So when Jesus comes into the city, they're prepared for him and they begin yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They cut down the ponds, 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 the leaves off of palm trees and they wave them around and they throw them on the ground. They take off their coats and they throw them down so that Jesus doesn't have to step his foot or his donkey's foot upon the stones. It's this sort of grand parade. I, I picture a little bit of like the end of Star Wars Episode One when Anakin and Obi-Wan are coming down the streets of Naboo after, you know, the triumphal victory against the evil separatists. And Or you might be able to picture Lord of the Rings at the very end of Return of the King whenever the hobbits are walking down Gondor. I, I, I really only have super nerdy references here because it's the only movies and scenes that I watch, but Either way, you kind of get the picture, right? The triumphal king rides into the city. Now, there's something significant about the fact that Jesus chose to ride on a donkey because a donkey has huge significance and symbolism both for Jews and for the Romans. For the Jews, the donkey was a symbol of peace. If somebody came in riding on this beast of burden, this calm beast of burden, it was a representation that Jesus came in peace. Now, that's unique because the Jews really did think that Jesus might come in violence, that he might rally the masses of the Jews to overthrow the Roman legions. And so it doesn't really make sense for a conquering king to come in on a donkey. Now, for the Romans, they viewed it as a sign of humiliation. I, I think it's actually it's either the kingdom of God or its gladiator, and I can't remember which one. But there's a scene in it wherever uh, the army conquers a city, and they take the king or the ruler of that city, and they strip him naked and put him backwards, blindfolded on a donkey, and parade him around the city as a sign of humiliation, right? That you've been defeated. The, the king, the emperor who wins the battle, well, he marches in on the back of a gallant steed. But the one who loses is stripped naked, embarrassed, and paraded in front of those he used to rule on the back of a beast of burden. So Jesus comes in riding on both something that represents for one group of people peace, which is confusing to them, and another group of people humiliation, which is also confusing for them. But he comes parading down the street on this thing, and he goes to the Temple of Solomon. Now, the Temple of Solomon is this enormous structure in the city of Jerusalem. It dominates everything. Solomon's colonnade was this enormous structure that was built up out of the ground with a rebuilt Temple of Solomon on top of it. And this giant golden temple rose up probably three times the size of any of the other buildings in Jerusalem. It totally dominated. It was actually much smaller and less grand than the original Temple of Solomon, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. But still, even if it's rebuilt form after the exile, it's pretty impressive. He heads to Solomon's colonnade and he flips over tables and he makes a whip out of some reeds and he smacks some beast. He drives a whole bunch of people out of the temple grounds. And then he pieces to a place called Bethany and he goes there to spend the night. Now, when I say he goes to a city called Bethany, really, it's a hillside beside Jerusalem. Picture it more like a neighborhood. Uh, for a Jew, a, a city is a grouping or an area that's surrounded by a wall. So you have the city of Jerusalem and the city of David. Jerusalem has a large wall around it, and the city of David is the inner wall. And then there's also the city 
of Bethany, which has a wall around it as well. Jesus goes over there, likely with some friends or relatives, and he spends the night with his disciples. The next morning, he shows back up on the temple courts and he begins teaching people. And the religious leaders come to him and say, what in the heck are you doing? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Now, they're asking two questions here. First off, Jesus shows up as some weirdo on a donkey, and then he goes to the temple courts and makes a whip and drives a bunch of people out. Who has the right to tell people they are or are not allowed inside the temple or on the temple grounds? Well, it's only the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, certainly not this strange, unknown, unannounced rabbi from Galilee. But the second question they're asking has more cultural relevance, and it's a little bit deeper. They're saying, who has given you the authority to teach these people? Now, in Jesus' day, what would happen was Jewish boys would begin by learning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, wrote predominantly by the disciple and the judge and the prophet Moses. Uh, they would memorize those first five books of the Bible, and if they did a good enough job, they would move on in their education and begin learning the rest of the 39 books of the Old Testament. If they were able to learn and memorize all of the books of the Old Testament, they might be able to go to a rabbi or a religious teacher and seek to become their disciple. So they would pick one that they really valued the teaching of, and they would go to them and ask if they could be the disciple of that person or the learner, right? The, you know, they would be, kind of become a mentor. And, and they would follow them around and they would learn sort of their theology, their understanding of who God was and uh, their understanding about the Jewish people and their understanding about the future and what was to come. And they would learn all of these things firsthand from this rabbi. And then when they would go out to teach one day, people would come and they would ask them, by what authority are you teaching? And they would give the name of the rabbi that they learned under. And thus, the passage of information and understandings about God and the yoke, or the yoke was kind of described as a burden, but a, but a thing that was placed over a bull's or a, a, an ox's neck in order to allow it to pull uh, uh, farming equipment. Um, this yoke of teaching would be the thing that you would carry with you, and then you would pass it down to the next generation. So let's just say I'm a young Jewish boy who wants to become a rabbi. I've learned the Old Testament, and there's rabbi Sheebs in my life, who I deeply respect, and I love what he has to teach. He's a humble and incredible man, and so I go to Rabbi Sheebs, and I say, will you teach me? Sheebs decides to take me on, and pretty soon, I'm following him around. A couple years later, maybe a couple of decades later, I'm teaching myself, and I'm in the temple courts, and somebody comes up to me and says, by what authority are you teaching? And I would say, oh, I'm teaching under the authority of Rabbi Sheebs, because I've learned his yoke of teaching, and I've carried it with me, and therefore, teachings and specific understandings about who God God was and what the testaments, the Old Testament means were passed down from one generation to the next. So it's the equivalent of somebody coming up to Jesus and saying, where's your seminary degree from? What gives you the right or the authority or the education to be teaching here? Now, Jesus interacts with the ruling leaders right there, the Pharisees, uh, the priests and the Pharisees, and he says, well, I tell you what, I will tell you by what authority I am teaching if you will answer a question for me, which Jesus did all the time. He very frequently answered questions with questions, and he asks them a real hard one. And he says, John the Baptist, by what authority did he come? Did, did he come by the authority of God or not? 
Now, John the Baptist was a really interesting character. He's one of Jesus' relatives. He showed up on the scene just before Jesus did. and He is like this rugged man who wears this rugged clothing, and he eats bugs, and he lives off the land, and he's out by the Jordan River, sort of on the eastern side of the nation of Israel. And from the Jordan River, he begins shouting, Repent, for the Messiah is coming, and the kingdom of heaven is near. He begins preaching about the kingdom before Jesus ever shows up on the scene, and that's what Jesus talked about the most, was the kingdom of God and how it was on its way. Now, Jesus actually goes out to John and all of the people who come to John begin to repent and be baptized. He begins dunking them in the river and they receive the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance, preparing their heart for the coming Messiah, this new person who would lead Israel back to glory, which Jesus was. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom and the people were preparing their hearts to receive exactly what his life would be and the teachings that he would bring about. So he asked the religious leaders, what do you think about John the Baptist? And they know full well that they were never baptized by John the Baptist because John typically baptized prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, the type of people the average Pharisee would never even touch because they would become unclean, let alone associate with. It was those people, the wretches of the world, who needed John's baptism, surely not them. So when John preached repent, the Pharisees sat on the sidelines and judged him, trying to figure out whether he had the right to be preaching this or not. They were the religious authorities that could decide one way or another whether or not somebody had the right to speak. Well, they don't want to come out and say that they didn't think that John was from God because the people held him as a prophet and knew that they would get upset. And at the same time, if they said that John was from God, that he was a prophet, a simple question would have been, well, why didn't you listen to him? Because the Pharisees didn't repent and they weren't baptized by him as Jesus was. Well, they decide in that moment they don't really have an answer. So they just come to Jesus and say, well, we don't know. Jesus responds by, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then he tells them an interesting story, which was so standard for Jesus. He very frequently told these very cryptic and strange stories that seemed to be completely out of left field. I think that a lot of people read the stories of Jesus with hindsight and they say, oh, it's easy to understand Jesus. He just taught this and told you to do this. And there are some things that Jesus taught that were relatively simple and straightforward. Love your neighbor, not too hard. Don't commit adultery. You know, I get that, right? Don't lust after somebody. Okay, hard, but I understand it. But a lot of the times Jesus taught things that were incredibly strange and very weird and totally caught the people off guard that he was teaching them to. And this is just one of those moments. So the Pharisees say, we're not going to tell you. And Jesus says, well, in that case, I'm not telling you either. And then he tells them this story in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 28. Let's take a look at it. But what do you think about this? Jesus says, a man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But then he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? They being the religious leaders replied, the first. So Jesus tells a very simple story, a couple of lines. He says, uh, there was a father and he had two sons, one older, one younger. And the older one, he told to go to the vineyard and work. And he said, no, and then did. And the younger one, he said to go to the vineyard and work. And he said, yes, and then he didn't. But every one of Jesus' stories 
each piece of it is meaningful. It, it's significant. It has substance to it because he told par parables because they were stories with larger moral points. And, and this one is all about the kingdom. And Jesus is talking about how to access the kingdom and the people who were already in his new spiritual kingdom, which was increasingly difficult to understand for the Pharisees who viewed the kingdom to be the physical nation of Israel. So the people who are players in this story, let's break them down. The first one is the, the father. And for the father, that's going to be God. In fact, um, almost all of Jesus' stories, when he says king or father, if there's a male authority figure, it's almost always going to be representative of his father in heaven. He's going to be talking about Yahweh, God, Jehovah. And so here's God, the father, right? And then he has two boys. And what's interesting in this story is the boys actually represent two different factions inside of Jewish culture. You see, at the time, there was a lot of cultural differences inside of the Jewish community. Uh, there were the fair Pharisees, who were the religious ruling elite, and they were very orthodox in their belief, super conservative. There was the Sadducees, who were more legal Jews than they were religious Jews, but also shared a lot of the authority. There is the um, there was a group of people who kind of lived as sort of like monks and recluses outside of the community, and then there was all of these different factions that were inside of the Jewish population. But specifically here, Jesus is talking about two groups. He's talking about the strict religious Jews, one of the brothers, and he's talking about this rising group of secular Jews, these people who are more Jewish in culture and in nationality, but not so much in terms of faith and the way that they see the world or practice things. You see, with the Roman occupation, well, it was after the Greek occupation of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And with that, there's a lot of people who have grown up without knowing an Israelite king. In fact, for many, many generations. They haven't really known an Israelite king. They haven't known a Jew who sat on the throne. They'd been ruled by the Babylonians. They had been ruled by the Persians. They had been ruled by a lot of different people. And now the Greeks and Romans. And so a lot of people inside of Jewish culture had begun abandoning their previous practices of faith and began adopting some of the secular viewpoints and understandings of the, of the Romans and, and the Greeks that they lived with. How do I know that? Well, when Jesus talks in here, he talks very frequently about the tax collectors and about the prostitutes, which represents two very different group of people. The tax collectors is representative of a group of people who have abandoned their Jewish brothers and sisters to adopt a Roman way of life. Uh, these are the people who have betrayed their heritage and just become Roman for all intents and purposes. And the prostitutes are the ones who have abandoned sort of the moral code of the Jewish way of life, all of the laws of Moses and the things that you are or are not supposed to do. The prostitute is sort of the exemplification of the moral downfall of this piece of Jewish culture. And so he has these people who've had both a moral and sort of a societal falling apart where they're less and less like the Jewish people that God have called them to be, and they're more and more like their Roman and Greek occupiers. And then there's also this religious group, this sort of Orthodox Jew who's very rigid and very legalistic, and they're representative of the two brothers. So then your question, of course, becomes which brother is which and why the heck does it matter and what can we actually learn from it in 2023, which are all really great questions. And Jesus leaves nothing up for debate. In fact, he just tells us who the people in the story are in this next passage. He says this in Matthew 
21, starting in verse 31b and extending to verse 32. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live. Here we are back at John the Baptist again. But you didn't believe him while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. So Jesus says, listen, well, first off, the Pharisees hate this, right? Because they don't want to be compared to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And they certainly don't want to be viewed as less than one of those groups of people. In fact, it's straight up heretical because they are actually following the Jewish way of life and the laws and the regulations. And these people care nothing for it. They are the ones eradicating Jewish society and angering God and causing them to be occupied, right? It's a common belief inside of Jewish culture at this time that if you are either exiled or occupied by a foreign nation, it's a punishment from God because you haven't been living the way that you should be. It's the prostitute's fault that the Romans are here. God is punishing us with the boot of the Roman legions because there are prostitutes in Israel, because there are tax collectors in Israel, because there are people who have betrayed. It is the sinner's fault. And if you look throughout the biblical narrative, that's not all that un true. There's lots of stories about different groups of people who lived extremely unrighteous lives and God chose over centuries of time to eventually exile them to the hand of the Babylonians. And so the Jewish leaders are trying to war against this growing group of secular Jews inside their culture to get an understanding like, oh my gosh, these people are the problem. And Jesus, you are saying that we're the problem, that we're not going to enter into your kingdom. I don't even want to be part of your kingdom, Jesus, if it's going to be filled with with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. Because just imagine the tension that's going on inside of this conversation, the political tension, the social tension that's going on here. All of these things are very alive and very true inside of the scriptures when we understand them in their proper place and with the cultural context folded around them. So Jesus says, listen, you are like the first son, you, the older son, or the, the second son, the younger son. You said that you were going to go into the field and work, but then you didn't. And these prostitutes and these sinners and these uh, Pharisee, or not the Pharisees, the tax collectors, th these are like the people who said they weren't going to follow God's ways. They said no to the Father, I'm not going to enter the vineyard. And then they did in the end of the day. And now the kingdom of God in this passage is being described as a vineyard. So we have the growing group of secular Jews, we have the religious Jews, we have God the Father, and we we have the kingdom. And through all of that, the command to go into the vineyard is depicted as the calling of John the Baptist in the wilderness to repent and prepare their hearts for the way of the Messiah and for what God was about to do. So Jesus basically says here, listen, you guys had said yes to God. You had said yes to the Father. You had prepared, but when the time came, you chose to not repent. You are just like them. He's comparing them as equals, both sinful, both fallen, both broken. And he's inviting them into a kingdom that is unlike any kingdom they've seen before. And for Jesus, this kingdom, practically speaking, is anybody who's agents of restoration and healing in the world. You see, in the Bible, we have the first two pages where the world is perfect, and we have page three where the world gets broken, and then we have the last two pages in the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, where the world is perfect again. And from page three until the last two pages of the Bible, it is the epic narrative and story of Jesus partnering with humanity to restore a broken world. So when Jesus welcomes people into his kingdom, he's welcoming them in to being restorative and healing forces in a broken and a destitute world. That's what being part 
heart of the kingdom is. It's partnering with God in his restorative plan. If there's one epic theme that goes from the beginning of the Bible to the end, it is the theme of God's partnership with humanity to bring about restoration. It's why he gives the laws to the Jews, to set them apart and make them holy as a holy priesthood for the rest of the world to see. It is why he worked through Jesus and the church and the apostles. It is what God is doing today still, telling stories of restoration and healing through the lives of Jesus' followers who have partnered with him and become part of his kingdom. And this story is about how we enter that kingdom. Now, we're not going to go out to the wilderness tomorrow and hear John the Baptist preaching and repent and be baptized. But I think there's two things that we can learn from this story about how we actually enter the kingdom of God and we become forces for restoration and healing in a broken and desperate world. Because in this, Jesus is basically saying, you Pharisees and you religious leaders, you think that you are part of the fix for the world. Uh, You're looking at the other people in the other side of the equation and you're thinking they're the one destroying what God has has planned. But I'm telling you right now, because you did not humbly move into the vineyard, because you didn't receive the call, because you didn't respond, you are forces of chaos and destruction and depravity, rather than being part of God's epic narrative of restoration and healing for a broken and desperate world. So Jesus gives us two things that we need to know and that we need to do that I think impact our lives in 2023, both as followers of Jesus, but I think also just as people to partner with him and his restorative plan in this current age. And the first one is we must take action. Now, before we do that, I totally forgot about the why it matters. I'm going to go hit it really quick and then we're going to move on. It says this, our why it matters this week is you enter Jesus kingdom through humility and action. You enter Jesus kingdom through humility and action. Now, first for action, there's this passage from the book of James, and James is the brother of Jesus biologically, and he says this in his letter. He says this in James chapter 2, verse 18. He says, now anyone, now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds deeds. Here James says, and is also echoed throughout the teachings of Jesus, that faith is relevant when it's given action. In other words, we have to actually step into the vineyard and get to work. It is not enough to have a theoretical understanding of who God is. It's not enough to just simply have intellectual assent that Jesus is who he said he is. We are actually need to be moved by Jesus in our hearts, that when we embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, we cannot help but enter the vineyard. That here in this passage, Jesus is saying, listen, if you are going to be part of my kingdom, you are going to have to do more than sit on the guidelines, sit on the sidelines, and obey the religious rules. You can do all the right things, make all the right sacrifices. You can be the guy who doesn't look at that stuff on the internet, and you can look down on the guy who does. You can be the girl who doesn't go sleep with that guy, and you can look down on the girl that does. You can be the person who doesn't yell at their kids, you can look down on the person who does. You can do all of the right things. And you can look and say, well, God is definitely with me. You can build up all of that self-righteousness. You can have a really great understanding of who God is. You can know tons of theology. You could have read all of the big books. You could have done all of those things. But if you will not enter the vineyard, you will not be part of God's kingdom. I have known too many people throughout my life who have great theoretical understandings of who God is. They have tons of intellectual assent and agreement with the nature and the character of God 
but they are not part of the kingdom that Jesus Christ came to start because they will not be moved to action. They won't be moved to love. They won't step in to the vineyard. They won't get to work. For them, an understanding of God is simply an intellectual pursuit. It has nothing to do with actually transforming the way they live their lives. Knowledge, which we're going to look in a minute, puffs up. This enabled the Pharisees to become very self-righteous and judgmental while just totally casting out and not even touching the people that were repenting and entering the kingdom of God in front of them through the baptism of John the Baptist and repentance at the Jordan River. Jesus calls us not just to understand who he is, but to live our lives in response to who he is. It's not just about saying, I know Jesus is, he's the son of God. I've seen so many people on the internet recently like, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. And it's like, well, your life doesn't reflect the fact that you're a Jesus follower at all. So you've never stepped in the kingdom. Now, keep in mind, this isn't about salvation, but it doesn't exclude salvation. So Jesus is saying, listen, you must be called into action. You've got to step into the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying understanding theology is wrong, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. You should. I'm not saying studying systematic theology is wrong. You should study it. Having an understanding of who God is is important, but that understanding should never bar you from action. It should spur you into love and compassion for others. It should encourage you not to sit in your ivory tower, but to get on your hands and knees, to scrub floors, to sit with children, to be in the mud with people, to be with people when they are at their worst. It should spur you to feed the homeless and care for the prisoner and be there for the orphan and the widow. It should spur you on. Our understanding of God should never remain theoretical because it always informs how we live our lives. Action. The second one is this, humility. Humility. This is another passage that comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This is Paul writing a letter to a church in Corinth, and it says this, Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Let me just, let me just let me unpack that for just a second. So Paul is writing a letter to a group of people who live in a coastal Roman city called Corinth. And Corinth was absolutely known for its debauchery and it was just like this hedonistic place, right? And so there was known for shrine prostitution. There was known for uh, child sacrifice. It was known for all of these sort of wild things. And this church is sort of in the middle of it. Picture like Vegas, the reputation of Vegas 20 years ago, right? Every place kind of has the reputation of Vegas now, but Vegas 20 years ago. That's the culture they were in. And in this, people would go and these Christians would go to a friend's house or a relative's house who would have presented food to be given to an idol or foreign god, a Greek or a Roman god. They would bring it back and they would eat it. And some of the Christians were having a hard time. Some felt they had the knowledge that says, it's okay, that God's not real. I can eat this food with you. And some of it didn't. And some of there was bickering and fighting between those who thought it was okay and those who thought it wasn't. Now, pulling that out of its context isn't super helpful, but I think the implications here go beyond that. Whenever Paul says that knowledge puffs up, the word puffs up in Greek literally um, means, let me just look it up because um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't want to mess it up. It literally means to make arrogant, whereas the word builds up, it literally means to edify or instruct to improve someone, to edify, to instruct, to improve someone. So here Paul says, listen, knowledge, it's going to puff you up. It's going to make you more arrogant. It's going to make you more self-righteous. But if you, if you experience that knowledge and then live it out in love and humility, well, listen, that's going to edify. That's going to build up. That's going to transform lives. 
that's going to it's going to change people if you'll take the things that you know and if you'll live those things out in love and in humility well that's going to change people's lives that's going to build up the church that's going to do something positive for somebody it's not just going to grow you in arrogance it's going to transform your life it's going to transform the lives of others it's going to build up your brothers and sisters it's going to build up the church so listen one of the key issues with the the pharisees and the sadducees at the times man they were so self-righteous and so prideful they didn't feel like they needed anything that john and jesus were doing in fact just after this a short five chapters after this the long section of jesus preaching comes to an end and the pharisees decide they're going to plot for a way to arrest and kill jesus they're so offended by the things that he has to say to to just assume to say anything positive about this secular group of jews that had just abandoned the faith was was just preposterous to the point where he was so dangerous they were ready to have him killed and they do have him killed arrogance and pride will destroy our ability to enter the kingdom of god we have to be willing to humbly come in repentance to be washed clean and then through action not just through theoretics we have to be able to enter the vineyard and get to work. Listen, man, Jesus is calling us not just to attend church, not just to do Christian things, not just to have Christian friends, not just read our Bible. It's not just for us. Church wasn't for us. I think the church is a great place to be built up, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be sent out. I agree with all of those things. And I think the church serves as a home and a, a place where the where Christians and followers of Jesus can come together and be rallied and be challenged and be prepared with brothers and sisters in arms that we can go out into a world and begin to love people fearlessly, recklessly, selflessly. I think all of those things. But I also think that the movement of Jesus was always intended for those that were lost and those that were broken and those that were humble, but also those who were ready to move into action. There are lots of people who are in the church right now, who are in the church. They go to church every week. They don't know anything about the kingdom of God because they've never stepped a foot in it. They've never walked into the vineyard. They've done all of the right things and they've said, dad, I'll go out to the vineyard. Don't worry. Whenever you leave, like you're going to get a house. I'm going to go right out there. And then they sat around on their phone all day on the couch and never got to work. The calling of Jesus on our life is a full submersion into his world and into his lordship. It's all-encompassing. It's not part-time. It's not half-time. It's everything. It's everything. That when we decide that Jesus is Savior and Lord of our life, he becomes master of our life, that we choose to surrender all of the other things that we thought were important and we begin to pick up the things that he thinks are important. Jesus is inviting you into the redemptive story that God has been telling for thousands of years. He's not done telling it, but he will one day finish telling the story and he will restore all things. And Jesus is inviting you into the vineyard. He's inviting you into the story saying, will you come and you will be an agent of redemption, of hope, of restoration, of grace, and of love in the world that you're in? Will you restore what has been broken? You as humanity have lost something. I'm going to give it back to you. But will you partner with me and help me restore it? Because if you won't, you will be an agent of chaos and destruction and you will tear apart the world that I gave you to protect. Jesus is inviting you into the kingdom. The question is, will you humbly move to action? Would you humbly move to action and step into the kingdom as well? Would you do it with me? Let's pray.
Father God, I love you and I thank you for tonight. I'm sure there's some stuff here tonight that was a little challenging. I pray, God, that it was convicting. I pray, Father, that it's moved people. I pray, Father, that it's not my words that move them, but it would be your word and the power of your word that would move our church forward. I thank you, Father. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you for being a God who doesn't just let us sit on the sidelines, but who welcomes us in and offers partnership alliance that we get to be agents of truth and hope and love and grace and compassion for a world that is destitute and broken and lost and lonely and confused. Fill us with your grace and your Holy Spirit. Spur us on to step into the vineyard, to get out of the house, to get off our butts, to get off the couch, and to become part of the spiritual narrative that you are telling. In your name we pray. Amen. Church family, as we get ready to head towards close tonight, Star Fox, thank you for that one is greater than 99. As we get ready to head out tonight, we're going to close. Uh, Stevie Peace, thank you for the follow. We're going to close by uh, going to the Lord's Supper together. This is something as a church that we do once a month, first Wednesday of every month. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This is something that Jesus instituted, and he said, when you gather, that you should do this. We believe that we're gathering right now, and we believe that no matter where you are, you can also partner with us and step into the Lord's Supper with us. A bit late. <laughs> Welcome in, Droxu. Good to see you. Chovy, thanks for the uh, raid. Appreciate you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, shortly after these stories that we told, he gathered his friends together in an upper room for something called the Passover meal. And during that meal, he took bread and he broke it. And when he did, he said, when you eat of this bread, I want you to do so in remembrance of me. Not knowing what they were talking about, they continued the meal. And at the end of the meal, Jesus took the cup that had wine. And he said, my friends and brothers, when you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. And he said, this blood was going to be a new covenant that was going to be forged in his name. That this bread represented his body that was going to be given for them. And they didn't understand it at the time, but soon they would. And when the first church was born, they would gather together in their homes and they devoted steadfastly continuing in this simple meal. From generation to generation, this symbolic meal passed down from one group of followers of Jesus to the next has held us together and not allowed us to forget what it was that Jesus did on our behalf, that a perfect God sent his perfect son to a broken world to be the centerpiece of a redemptive story to restore a broken creation to its rightful place inside of God's glory. So here at Lux, every month we confess, we repent, and we celebrate. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to partake and I'm going to give a moment of silence. And if you have stuff that's on your heart that stands between you and God, I beg of you, repent of it. Confess it. Give it over to him. He already knows it, so speak it. Whatever is standing between you and this meal, between you and Jesus, I pray that you would give it over. you got to get down on your hands and knees tonight. Get down on your hands and knees tonight. you got to repent of something. Repent of something. you got to confess something to someone. Confess something to somebody. But prepare your heart for the receiving of this sacred meal. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you tonight humbly and prepared to be moved into your kingdom we ask god that you would clear our eyes and we pray father that you would just bless us we pray father that you would be with us as we partake in this humble and simple meal we pray now father that you would hear our prayers and the cries of our hearts as we repent and surrender the things of our lives over to you that are not of you Amen.
Friends, this is the body of Jesus given for you. Let us eat of it in remembrance of him. And friends, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for the sins of us all. Let us drink of it in remembrance of him. Let's pray together the prayer that he taught us to pray when he said this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message at Lux Digital Church. If Lux has been having an impact on your life, I want to encourage you to visit us at luxdigitalchurch.com and get connected to our community there. We're so thankful for you and we appreciate you. Have a blessed day and a blessed week.